ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Friday the 15th of December. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, the US Congress approves a plan to sell nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. Queensland's new Premier takes office after the resignation of Anastasia Palaszczuk and celebrating the life of Barry Humphreys with a state memorial service at the Sydney Opera House. At one theatre, he knew he was first on stage after interval. He ran from a nearby pub and managed to reach the theatre just as the interval ended. He dashed into the wings and then onto the stage. The only problem was he was in the wrong theatre. <laughs> in the wrong play. First today, airports and airlines are being put to the test today on what is predicted to be the busiest flying day of the year. Qantas is expecting around 150,000 Australians to take to the skies today. Tourism industry leaders are predicting one of the strongest domestic travel seasons in years, as cost of living pressures force many to reconsider an overseas trip. And experts say the major airlines have taken extra steps to help limit disruptions for travellers after several years of delays, cancellations and complaints. Gavin Coote reports. If you are at the front of the main queue, I to check in. At the nation's busiest airport in Sydney, Queensland mother Erin is among thousands who are jetting between cities for some long-awaited family time. It's a nice way to come down, though, to home for us because we grew up here, my sister and I. It's lovely to be home and see our friends as well, which we got a chance to catch up with other friends and family, which we can't do when, you know, obviously living in Kansas. Far north Queensland's too far to travel. Though it's not the whole family, Erin and her sister have had to scale back the headcount to avoid a cost blowout. When you're looking at buying your Christmas presents for your children and things like that at the same time, yeah, it's hard. So our husband stayed home for this trip because it was more affordable for us to come, my sister and I, together with the kids and the husband stayed home. Even as cost of living pressures continue to bite, tourism industry operators are expecting a strong domestic travel season. Margie Osmond is the CEO of Nationwide Industry Group, the Tourism and Transport Forum. I think it's going to be a very strong domestic season for the tourism industry. Uh, We know from our own surveying that something like 75% of people have said they're taking a holiday during the festive season. You know, the bulk of them will be staying here at home. Something like 14% will be going overseas. But the vast bulk of Australians are staying in their own state for Christmas. How are cost of living pressures affecting people's decisions around travel? One thing we do know is that cost of living is having an impact on people and their disposable income, obviously. But uh, holidays are still viewed as the number one thing that you spend your discretionary money on. So everybody still thinks they need a holiday. And I think after the couple of years we've had, holidays have become an even more precious thing for many people. Uh, We are seeing a slight increase in overseas travel, but we're certainly seeing a big increase in regional travel in Australia with interesting age groups discovering places like Dubbo and Broken Hill. Not everyone's having a great time getting across the country, though, as staff shortages and cancelled flights continue to plague the aviation industry. Traveller Pren considers such disruptions part of the new normal since the pandemic. I'm just arriving from Germany after 32 hours flight. 
Then my flight was to Adelaide. Suddenly they cancelled. It's just one and a half hour flight and uh, it is delayed by almost 12 hours, so it's really, really uncomfortable. After months of public criticism, Qantas says it and subsidiary Jetstar are pulling out all stops to prepare for the summer peak. Meanwhile, Virgin Australia has this week struck a pay deal with unions and averted the potential for strikes. Aviation consultant Neil Hansford thinks a lot of the criticism levelled at both airline groups has been over the top. The weather expectation for Christmas and the new year this year is much better. Like last Christmas, we had a very wet run-up and we've had some rough some rough weather. Um, Qantas have copped such a battering that they are overcompensating. They have 14 aircraft on standby, fully crewed, and that starts with an A380 down to a uh, Dash 8. So um, that's cost, and Virgin are probably doing some of the same thing. Back at the airport, passengers are hoping for the best. Professional boxer Kate McLaren's flight from Sydney to Dubbo seems to be on schedule. But so far it seems okay. We've got a little bit of a queue, but it's nothing too drastic and it seems like we're moving pretty pretty smoothly. So, yeah, so far so good. That's professional boxer Kate McLaren there ending that report from Gavin Coote and Rachel Hayter. Now to the defamation trial brought by Bruce Lehrman. Network 10 journalist Lisa Wilkinson has denied that she and her colleagues on the Project TV program didn't give Mr Lehrman enough time to respond to the allegation that he'd raped his colleague Brittany Higgins at Parliament House. Mr Lehrman is suing both Ms Wilkinson and Network 10 for defamation after the project broadcast the allegation without naming him in 2021. Mr Lehrman strongly denies the allegation and his criminal trial was aborted because of juror misconduct. No findings have been made against him. Our reporter Samantha Donovan has been following the case and joins me now. Sam, how much time was Bruce Lehrman given in 2021 to respond to the allegations that the project was putting to air? Sally, the, the courts heard that an email was sent to Bruce Lehrman at 2.30 on a Friday afternoon. The project was planning to broadcast its report on the Monday night. Now, Bruce Lehrman's barrister, Matthew Richardson, SC, has put to Lisa Wilkinson that contacting him at that time on a Friday afternoon and giving him a 10am deadline on Monday would present obvious problems to a person in their mid-20s. And he said given that the story had been worked on for about a month, they should have given him more time. But Lisa Wilkinson told the court she believed giving Mr Lehrman 80 hours to respond before broadcast time was enough. Mr Richardson then put to her that if Mr Lehrman had responded and agreed to an interview, it would have been just a footnote to the story. But Ms Wilkinson gave evidence she believed the program would have made room for an interview with him and she was in fact preparing questions for Mr Lehrman in case he agreed to that. What else has Lisa Wilkinson been questioned about? Well, another issue, Sally, that's come up today and she's been pressed on is the amount of information the project gave about the alleged rapist that, that would allow him to be identified, even though he wasn't named in the program. So the project mentioned that he'd worked for Senator Linda Reynolds, named the portfolios, uh, said he'd now left Senator Reynolds' office and was working in Sydney. Ms Wilkinson denied in court that information would allow people who 
who didn't already know about the rape allegation to work out that the project was referring to Bruce Lehman. She gave evidence that she relied on Network 10's lawyers to decide how much detail to include about the alleged offender's identity. Mr Richardson contrasted the project's approach with that of Samantha Maiden's article in News.com which was published that same day, the Monday. It didn't name Senator Reynolds or the portfolios. And he put to Lisa Wilkinson that that additional information broadcast by Channel 10 about the identity of the alleged offender meant they should have given Bruce Lehman more time to respond to the allegation. And again, Ms Wilkinson told the court that was an issue for Network 10's legal department and she was trusting them. And Sam, the court heard earlier in the week that Brittany Higgins' lawyer and partner were secretly taped discussing her evidence. Is that matter being taken any further? It's looking like it won't be going any further in court, Sally. Sky News was given a, a tape that had been recorded secretly in a, a Sydney bar of Brittany Higgins' lawyer, Leon Zwire, her partner, David Shiraz, and a, a friend, Emma Webster, talking about how Brittany Higgins could answer questions in her cross-examination. Now, the problem with that is that when someone's been cross-examined, they can't discuss their evidence with anyone else or take advice, even if they're in the box for days. Mr Zwire has strongly denied that his comments were to be passed on to Ms Higgins and said that was understood by Mr Shiraz and Ms Webster. So in court today, another of Bruce Lehrman's barristers, Stephen Wybrow SC, has told the judge they're not planning to recall Brittany Higgins to cross-examine her on that secret recording or put it into evidence. Samantha Donovan, thank you. Queensland's new Premier is taking office today less than a week after Anastasia Palaszczuk announced her resignation after almost nine years at the helm. So who is incoming Premier Stephen Miles? And with less than a year until the state election, is a change of leadership what the Labor Party needs to secure a fourth term of government? Associate Professor Paul Williams is a political commentator at Griffith University. Stephen Miles has really come out of nowhere, you might say, even though he's been Deputy Premier for almost four years. Uh, I don't think he's terribly well-known among the electorate, but within the Labor Party, he is uh, a function of the trade union movement, clearly. He worked for the United Workers' Union uh, before his entry to Parliament, and uh, that's a left-wing union, and he did his PhD on union politics. So unionism is steeped in his milieu, as it were, it's in his blood. Um, so he's probably more a function of the union route to politics, which used to be, of course, the traditional way to get into Labor politics. And when he first came to the deputy premiership, again, it was all a bit sudden because he replaced former left head and deputy premier Jackie Trad, who had to resign from cabinet over questions of integrity, accusations of integrity issues. And she resigned from cabinet and uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk needed a new deputy premier. And he was the next cab off the rank as the second most senior member of the left. So he got the job. So he has filled that space pretty well. And again, you know, he's an unlikely deputy premier and now premier because he's so softly spoken. Um, and he has adopted something of the attack dog role, which deputy premiers must do. But it's been with mixed success. So he's probably not the most popular member of the Labor Party. And a lot of people, I think, in the LNP might be salivating at the thought of taking on someone who's not wasn't a terribly popular deputy premier. But by the same token, there's some anecdotal evidence too that because Anastasia Palaszczuk had quite a few absences in the last year or so, Stephen Miles had plenty of opportunities to step up, be acting Premier. But of course, his new government 
is facing a litany of problems, cost of living being number one, law and order being number two. And given that the LNP is, has been ahead of the polls in terms of preferred premier, in terms of primary vote, and in terms of preference vote, it is an uphill climb for Stephen Miles to get back to where Labor was two years ago. What went wrong for Anastasia Palaszczuk, do you think? Well, Anastasia Palaszczuk really had a dream run as Premier of Queensland. And no matter what happened in the last 12 to 24 months of her leadership, she goes out a champion in the Labor pantheon. She was the first woman at state or federal, but not territory level, to come into office uh, from opposition. She's the first woman to win three terms. And, you know, the fact is her third term, she actually won an increased parliamentary majority with a swing to her. It's very remarkable. And, and she managed to achieve a lot in her nine years, including uh, euthanasia legislation, abortion legislation, record spendings and regional infrastructure. So it's really quite a strong record for someone who was written off as the accidental premier. But it all started to come unstuck two years ago, end of 2021, 2022, when there were allegations of problems with integrity around Labor. And this sort of criticism really uh, found traction. So pretty much from late 2022 to today, the Premier's approval ratings have been in freefall. And interestingly, why the, uh, the, the, the power brokers have moved to Palaszczuk now and not three months ago is because we've seen some polling that Labor's primary vote has stabilised. It's still only it's still about thirty three percent too low. The Labor Party would like it in the high thirties, where the LNP's primary vote is. But thirty three percent is certainly up where it was twenty six percent in one poll a few months ago. But Anastasia Palaszczuk's approval ratings themselves continue to decline. So she seems to be the independent variable. And party power brokers have realised that Palaszczuk was the problem, not the Labor Party per se, and that's why her leadership became untenable. That's Associate Professor Paul Williams from Griffith University. You're listening to The World Today. The AUKUS defence deal has cleared an important hurdle with the US Congress passing vital legislation. It was part of a massive defence bill which got the final tick of approval by the House of Representatives overnight. North America Bureau Chief Jade McMillan is in Washington, D.C. Jade, is this a big milestone? It is a significant step forward. This legislation that has passed the House of Representatives and the US Senate now achieves a number of different things. It authorises the sale of at least three Virginia-class submarines to Australia. It relaxes export controls so that sensitive US technology can be transferred. It also allows Australian defence contractors to train in the United States and it paves the way for the Australian government to make a payment of three billion US dollars, that's more than four billion Australian dollars at today's exchange rate, to help speed up submarine production at American shipyards. Now, the first Virginia class sub isn't scheduled to be transferred to Australia until the early 2030s. And this legislation states that ahead of that happening, whoever is in the White House by that stage would need to certify that the transfer was still in line with American foreign policy interests and wouldn't undermine the United States' own submarine capabilities. That has prompted questions as to whether a future US president could back out of the deal. The early 2030s is, of course, a very long time away in politics. But one of the most vocal backers of the AUKUS plan in Congress, Democratic Representative Joe Courtney, uh, really sought to downplay those concerns today. He argued that the passage 
stage of this legislation was a powerful show of bipartisan support. And he argued that there is also strong backing within the US military. Given what I think was really powerful support from what is ultimately the key department in the executive branch, the Department of the Navy, I just feel that whatever the president that might be would, would face you know, tremendous uh, blowback in terms of uh, trying to undo what we've accomplished here today. That's Jade Courtney there. And Jade, how has the Australian government responded to this? Well, it's described uh, this as an historic moment. It has pointed to the fact that this would be the first time that the United States has sold a nuclear-powered submarine to another country. It did uh, share the technology with the United Kingdom decades ago, but this really would be unprecedented. The Minister for Defence Industry, Pat Conroy, is in Washington at the moment. Uh, He insisted that he is comfortable in the wording of the legislation uh, and that he's confident that this bipartisan support we've seen in Congress this week would hold. The beauty of the AUKUS arrangements is it improves the security uh, of both Australia and the United States and the United Kingdom. It's in all our uh, national interests. And I was uh, at meetings in the Pentagon today and yesterday, including with the uh, US Navy, and they are fully on board and 100% committed to AUKUS because this is about growing the industrial base of all three countries, giving the Royal Australian Navy the most advanced submarines in the world, which is essential to strategic deterrence and maintaining stability in the Indo-Pacific. That's uh, Pat Conroy there, Minister for Defence industry and before him our North America Bureau Chief Jade McMillan. The United States is pushing Israel to end its large-scale ground and air campaign in the Gaza Strip. But leaders on both sides of the Israel-Gaza conflict are saying they won't give in as heavy fighting in the region continues. Eliza Getze reports. Israel's bombardment of Gaza shows no sign of slowing down, with the Israeli Defence Force targeting areas in the north and south of the Strip. At least three people were killed and several others injured overnight in a strike on a home in the Al-Shabura camp in Rafah, near the border with Egypt. Nine weeks since the war began, US media is reporting the Biden administration is urging Israel to move to a more targeted phase in the fighting to reduce the number of civilian casualties. Earlier in the week, the wire service Reuters reported Joe Biden had told a private fundraiser event that Israel was losing international support over what he reportedly described as indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. President Biden, do you want Israel to scale back its assault on Gaza in, by the end of the year? Do you want them to tone it down, move to a lower intensity phase? I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives, not stop going after Hamas, but be more careful. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel is pushing ahead with the fighting. I want to make it clear, the return of our hostages is a central goal. We are not letting go of it. I told our American friends our heroic warriors did not die in vain. Out of the deep pain of their deaths, we are more determined than ever to continue fighting until Hamas is eliminated, until complete victory. Palestinian officials say 18,700 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli fire or airstrikes since the conflict started. Israel says 113 of its soldiers have died in the fighting since October 7, when it estimates 1,200 people were killed by Hamas gunmen. More than 130 hostages captured during the Hamas attack are still in Gaza. Osama Hamdan is a political spokesman for Hamas. There will be no negotiations or hostages returned until there is a complete cessation of aggression. 
and until there is compliance with the terms of the resistance in the hostage exchange deal. As the war rages on in its third month, Israel's ambassador to the UK is dismissing the idea of a two-state solution for Israelis and Palestinians. Zippy Hotovelli was interviewed by UK broadcaster Sky. Israel knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. So the two-state solution is dead. Why are you obsessed with a formula that never worked? Meanwhile in Australia, the Executive Council of Australian Jury says data it's collected shows a jump in anti-Semitic incidents locally. Alex Rifshin is the co-CEO of The Peak Body. We have seen a 738% increase in incidents in the two months since the Hamas atrocities of October 7 compared with the same period last year. We've seen vandalism of Jewish businesses, assaults, targeting of Jewish schoolchildren, threats against senior individuals in the Jewish community, bomb threats against Jewish schools and institutions. And this is just the peak of the iceberg. This reveals a deeply troubling time for our community and indeed for our society. That's Alex Rivchin there from the Executive Council of Australian Jury, ending that report from Eliza Getze. Barry Humphreys has been remembered as a gifted entertainer and loving friend at a state memorial service at the Sydney Opera House. The late comedian died in April. He became famous for his portrayal of characters such as Dame Edna Everidge and Celeste Patterson. At today's ceremony, his performances both here and overseas were celebrated. David Sparks has more. A ceremony to celebrate one of the great figures of Australian culture. Friends, family and dignitaries were there. And his son, Rupert, remembered a childhood following Barry Humphreys on his incredible journey. Before each show started, I would sit in his dressing room as he applied makeup, wigs and fake teeth and then watch him either step into a sequined frock or a totally disturbing fat suit that he wore for Les, <laughs> with its huge appendage attached. Barry Humphreys became a comic legend, thanks mainly to his ability to bring eccentric characters to life. Chief among those, Dame Edna Everidge, the hilarious, slightly egotistical housewife from Mooney Ponds in suburban Melbourne. She was my sidekick. She'd stand at my side and I would kick her. <laughs> Barry Humphrey's longtime collaborator, Bruce Beresford, who directed the famous Barry McKenzie films with him, told the audience of the first time he met the man in person in London. I'd been given Barry's phone number by a Sydney friend, but hesitated for some time to make the call, as I felt he was probably fed up with hearing from unknown Australians. However, he was immediately friendly and suggested a meeting. This turned out to be somewhat surreal as we found ourselves talking in the living room of his house, ankle deep in water, from a trendy water-filled sofa that had sprung a leak. <laughs> Bruce Beresford shared the serious side of his friends too, including Barry Humphrey's battle with alcohol, which held back his career, sometimes in ridiculous fashion. At one theatre, he knew he was first on stage after interval. He ran from a nearby pub and managed to reach the theatre just as the interval ended. He dashed into the wings and then onto the stage. The only problem was he was in the wrong theatre. <laughs> in the wrong play. And Bruce Beresford remembered another side of Barry Humphreys, a fiercely loyal friend, especially when they were making that Barry McKenzie film in the early 1970s. Now, I found out quite recently that Barry was under pressure at the time to find some more experienced director than me to handle the film. 
Barry resisted and insisted I direct. Barry McKenzie was my first feature film. With Barry's support, my childhood dream directing a movie was a reality. Barry Humphrey's daughter, Tessa Humphreys, recited a poem he wrote describing his childhood in pre-war Melbourne. Back in the wattle thirties, before the world went dark, they built this noble chalet on the crest of Wattle Park. The trammies on their days off came for Devonshire teas and outside the kiddies seesawed with mercurochromy knees. A graveyard for old cable trams lay before us in the valley where we played till creamy soda time and Dixie's in the chalet. Barry Humphreys died in April, age 89. That's David Sparks reporting. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Are you an AI boomer or doomer? Do you think artificial intelligence will make the world a better place? Or are you worried it could destroy our way of life? Today, Professor Toby Walsh, the Chief Scientist at UNSW's AI Institute, on the recent fight over AI in Silicon Valley and the latest innovations we need to know about. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.